Hello there. Look what the cat dragged it. Oh my. Are you alright? Hurry, get inside. You need to get here earlier if you're going to pay regular visits. Just because you're safe inside doesn't mean you can be roaming around outside all willy-nilly. Judging by the mud on your clothes, am I right to assume those scratches are from a fall? Thank Jiminy, we won't have to deal with another infection. Trish can help you get cleaned. We find a surprising amount of first aid kits and have to keep everything. I can't stand to let the forest get cluttered. Having a demon for a neighbor is no reason to neglect lawn care. Oh, that's right. I did promise to read from my journal, didn't I? Well, I'm happy to oblige, but I warn you, there's more than usual. We won't be able to finish it tonight. Unlike my predecessors, I have a fondness for talking, as I'm sure you've noticed. Hush now, Ethan. I hear you snickering over there. You just enjoy that iPhone before it dies. Huh? No, he can't use it in the traditional sense, but that one has a bunch of movies downloaded. We love movies. If we'd have seen one of those back in my day, there'd have been a witch hunt for the ages. Anyway, I can see you're ready to get started, but let me catch you up first. My father didn't enjoy his title, but he was the head honcho for over 20 years. I never had the burden myself, thank the good cricket, but my brother, Timothy, did. The position wasn't guaranteed through blood. That barely got your name in the hat. You had to be respected by the community, and that wasn't earned lightly. When it became clear Uncle Snake's son wouldn't fit the bill, Tim proved himself capable. Dad taught us to read and write. My brothers hated it, but my sister and I wanted to read everything. There were precious few books in Jamestown back then. Paper and writing tools weren't exactly common either, but I'd write in the dirt just to have something new to read. Sure, we had a school, but not like you think. Surviving was the most important thing to learn. What's safe to eat and drink, hunting, farming, and the like. No, I never got bit by the travel bug. Too many people decided to go exploring and never came back. Who knows if they settled somewhere or died. Either is likely. Plus, Trish was in Jamestown. I asked Miss Patricia Mayfield to dance when she was 16 and haven't been able to calm my racing heart since. The hell's bells, woman. I'm trying to be romantic. Can't you let me set the mood for our friend? Atmosphere is a key component to good storytelling. As I was saying, my heart raced until the day we died. Now, obviously, the racing is metaphorical, but it's there all the same. We were married next spring and started our own little family. Uh, yes, thanks for getting me back on track. A few months after I was born, another group of settlers came looking for the third group. They're the first thing I wrote about, in fact. When father died in 77, I found a hidden stash of new journals. I don't know where or when he collected them all. But I was so happy I could hardly stand it. They were better than gold, and I wanted to fill every one of them. Of course I couldn't, but I made sure they stayed in the family. Now we have journals full of our history, and I can't tell you how happy I am to have someone to share it with. Ah, shucks, don't thank me. Really, I should be thanking you. Well, I've probably wasted enough time rambling. I wrote my first entry the night I found the books, so we should be ready to get started.
January 30th, 1677. I can't believe I'm writing in my very own journal. There are only a few worn pages remaining in the one father continued, and the whole thing is ready to fall apart. It seems a better idea to begin my writings on crisp new pages. A trunk full of books may be the most magnificent scent in all the world. If not for the burden of family, I would surely never leave my desk again. I wish I could begin this book with an account of what happened to the second settlement, but sadly my knowledge lacks the ability to do it justice. It is most unfortunate father never found time to write on them, for now only their descendants remain. Eventually, I may be able to collect information from the relatives, but it will be difficult to confirm the accuracy. For that reason, I believe it best to first document the fourth settlement. There are still survivors who can give me first-hand accounts, and no more time should be wasted in recording their story. They came in 1645. This time, only eight people survived the voyage. The ship was attacked by pirates six weeks before they arrived. Twenty-nine people died in the fight, but the assailants retreated when they lost too many of their own. When the travel-weary colonists found the third settlement abandoned, they sent scouting parties to search the surrounding areas. Our people were extremely uneasy when the new arrivals came into Jamestown. This was only two years after my uncle's incident. The men lost to that venture had families who still grieved. The scouts explained they were looking for the lost colony. Many of the newcomers were their kin. Someone of the previous group was able to get a letter detailing how wonderful their new home was onto a merchant ship. Of all the times for correspondents to make it across the ocean, alas, as a result, more came to join them. Funding, travel, and many other factors culminated in a delayed arrival. Father and those who had relatives in the new group accompanied the scouts back to Dirge Lake. It was hoped a fourth settlement could be prevented if the warnings came from their own. Father once told me he could see the difference in the lake from his previous visit. The green film now covered the water's surface and the grass grew in sparse patches. He tried to stress these facts in his warnings, but most decided to stay. Peter Evans was too old for the hike, but his younger sister, Pamela, was the first family he had since the death of his children. Her husband was killed by the pirates, but her son and his family were well. Pamela returned with Peter that evening, citing herself too old and heartbroken to face the trials of resettling, demon or not. Her son would not be swayed. Ethel Kingston was too frail to make the hike, but her eldest daughter, Sally, went in her stead. Ethel's niece had died in childbirth, and her husband was killed by the pirates. The baby, having no other family, was given to Sally. The only others to come to Jamestown that night were the newly widowed Emma Granger and her daughter, Anna. Mrs. Granger hoped to be taken in by her brother-in-law, but he was a victim of the lake monster. There were no other family reunions. The remaining were given the bad news of their loved one's demise. Once sure no others could be convinced, Father got our people across the river before nightfall. They say everyone watched for their return in great anticipation, letting out a collective sigh of disappointment at the side of the small group. The Grangers were taken in by the Richardson family until a home could be built. In preparation for the future arrivals, new land was cleared and homes were built over the next several months. It also served to keep minds occupied. 
they no longer feared solely for others. Now, they also had to worry the demon would choose another escape tool. Meanwhile, the fourth settlement, excited to be on dry land, wasted no time in restoring the village. My, how quickly time flies as these pages fill. I should end this here. It would be unfortunate to have Patricia Cross with me on my first night as a writer. Perhaps I shall try my hand at a love poem once I gain some confidence with the pen. I swear to you, I remember the moment I wrote that line. I was thinking to myself, I wish there was a way to convey a wink through the written word. Ethan, I don't care if the battery died. Don't interrupt story time. You should know better. We knew people who were hanged for less. Sorry about that, friend. It's almost torture having a drawer full of phone chargers but no electricity. Yes, indeed. I did tell you the power was out on your first visit, and technically that's the truth. It's been out for three years since the old generator went kaput. Why are you rifling through your bag? You looking for something? What's a battery brick? It does what? Are you sure you don't mind? Wow, Ethan, thank our kind friend for restoring the movie magic. That should keep him nice and quiet. January 31st, 1677. I may not have long tonight. Trish was not pleased with my absence at the children's bedtime, nor my lateness to our own. If I don't want to bunk with the boys, I will need to retire much earlier. I thought of this journal all day, and how Father not only documented the events that happened, but sought new information as well. I have indulged fantasies of meeting the shaman in the Great Mountains, but I don't dare make the journey myself. I could petition Tim to send a small party. It is truly the wisest strategy. Sooner or later, the demon will escape, and when it does, we will likely be the first to fall, if not in our lifetime, our children's. Yes, I will go to him first thing in the morning. Now, back to the fourth colony. They had a fraction of the work previous settlements endured. The forest had less time to grow back, leaving smaller trees to clear, and many homes only needed repairs before they could be moved into and cleaned. The earliest complaints were in the second month. In the dead of night, Matthew Brown and his wife Harriet woke to fast, heavy banging at the front door. Matthew dressed and rushed downstairs, nearly tripping on the steps in his haste. He could not fathom a reason someone would be so far out at his farm, but the knocking stopped as he reached the landing. A sick feeling in his stomach made him retrieve his rifle before slowly approaching a window. Pressing his back against the wall, he turned his neck to peer outside. There was nothing near the door. Moving to the other side, he saw only darkness. Matthew maneuvered to the opposite window stepping in front of it and almost losing his stomach when a face stared back. He screamed, and his reflection with him. Harriet came to stand by the window, startling him anew. Feeling foolish, Matthew steeled himself and unbolted the door. Lantern held high, he stepped outside. They heard someone calling for help from the forest, but said it sounded unnatural, as if someone who did not know our language were trying to use the word. Unsure what to do, Matthew called out, asking what was wrong. The voice went silent for a moment, then, in the same odd cadence, replied. Harriet ran indoors, trying to pull her husband along, but he was rooted in place. 
He called out again, asking their name. After another pause, the voice choked out. While growing deeper with each word, not waiting to hear more, Matthew joined his wife and locked the doors. Nothing else happened that night, and no one believed their tale in the morning. Harriet says they believed the village was haunted by the ghosts of the dead. After she came to Jamestown, she shared her experiences with the elders. They believe, as Kiwani had warned, another evil entity had been attracted to the demon's power. They will not tell me what this new creature is, claiming to speak or write the name would only increase its strength. Whatever it is, they act as if they are familiar with its kind. I hope to learn more on this matter, though I wonder how many of these abominations can coexist. Is there no chance one might kill another? <laughs> Tarnations, it's time. Damn my fool brain. I shall bunk with the boys yet. February 1st, 1677. Once again, I find myself thinking of this moment all day. I have fantastic news. Tim has agreed to my request. I am not comfortable with our brother James leading the expedition, but I know he stands the greatest chance of success. My conscience can rest easier knowing he chooses this dangerous path freely with excitement. They will leave as soon as the weather turns warm, and the journey will be long, difficult, and dangerous. I will not let myself dwell on possible negative outcomes, but the venture will take months with optimistic estimations, years at worst. If we are lucky, they may return with viable information before a fifth colony tries to settle Dirge Lake. Returning to matters of the fourth settlement, I spoke with Tim's spiritual advisor regarding Harriet Brown's claims. Like the elders, he became angry, refusing to speak on the matter. Whatever it is, he too fears it more than the ghost, lake monster, and demon combined. If these creatures came to the demon, drawn by it, does that mean they are not likewise confined? Perhaps I shall desist further attempts to identify it. Instead, I'll continue with the colony's next tragedy. It was a few weeks after the happenings at the farm when four hunters walked into the cursed woods and none returned. When a search party was formed, they only found scraps of bloodied clothing. The men were a heavy loss on a small community. Every person has a part to play, and storing food for the winter is a key element to survival. Desperate to find reason in the chaos, they blamed a bear for the deaths. Pamela Mayfield's son was one of the deceased hunters. A single good thing I can write concerning this incident is that her daughter-in-law and grandchildren joined her in Jamestown. The following month is when Matthew Brown disappeared. His wife said they had only begun letting down their guard when their new dog leapt from its blankets, barking savagely. Seconds later, loud, desperate banging shook the door in its frame. The farmer retrieved his rifle while Harriet soothed the dog. It continued to growl low in its throat, hair and tail standing erect. Who goes there? Matthew shouted. The knocking stopped, but there was no answer. The hound let out a slight whimper, but remained on guard. Harriet was trying to pull her husband away when a series of sharp bangs came from the kitchen. Matthew rushed through the house to see the shutters flapping wildly. After securing them in place, a crash, a scream, and more furious barking sounded simultaneously. He returned to see the door standing open, his wife frozen in shock, and the dog missing. 
He ran outside calling its name. This snapped Harriet from her stupor and she begged Matthew to return. He refused, stating that he could not afford to lose the expensive hound. Its future puppies would be too important to their livelihood. She watched in horror as her husband ran into the forest, rifle in one hand, lantern in the other, calling for a dog that would turn out to be hiding in the bushes aside the house. Harriet discovered it whimpering after it was too late to recall Matthew. She and her pet were the last ones to escape before things became truly perilous. The elders insisted on personally inspecting each new resident for signs of possession. But it was a small price to pay. Some have told me they would have traded their souls for shelter across the river if that were the price. Most expressed relief with their interrogations, finding comfort in how seriously the matter was considered. I do not know much of the outside world, but I have learned enough to understand I would live nowhere else. Alas, I once again retire. I must wake with the dawn tomorrow. There are weeks remaining in winter, yet our own food stores run low. I will need to forge before another blizzard snows us in. I tell you, you can't appreciate today's luxuries without understanding what it was like having mouths to feed before grocery stores. Now that's something, ain't it? Grocery stores? Boy, would I love to go into one just for the experience. No, wait. Better yet, fast food. That would be a treat. I know you're ready to hear more, but I thought you might need a break. Besides, the fire has gotten a little low. The movies are spoiling that boy. If it gets any darker in here, something really is liable to come down the chimney, and it won't be Santa. Last time it took us weeks to get rid of the smell and stains. Well, never mind all the hows and whats. Hold your hopping horses while me and the potato sack throw on some more logs. Then I need to check a little something outside. Sorry about all the commotion out there. Got a little dicey for a second, but it's fine now. Trisha's mother popped by. She's having one of her spells again, but I don't expect she'll be back tonight. Oh, well that's too long of a story to get into tonight, but if you ever see a tall woman with wild, fire-red hair and a missing eye, run away. She has good days and bad, but you don't want to get close enough to find out which she's having. Here. Let's get back to the story. February 3rd. I missed one night of writing, but it feels like weeks. Yesterday, I departed before the sun was fully risen. Game is scarce in the winter, but I could not return without meat. There is no greater shame for a man than failing to feed his family. I procured enough food to carry us safely through the last snows, but I had no energy remaining for the journal. I was barely able to remove my shoes before collapsing into slumber. When I am finished telling of the fourth settlement, I do not know what I will have to write about. The everyday life in Jamestown is hardly of any interest. My eyes grow heavy at the mere thought of discussing crops or chronicling births and deaths, but what else is there? After Harriet Brown fled, the small village remained quiet for nearly a week until the next occurrence. 
Shortly after nightfall, Ronald and Janice Burns knocked on every door in search of their missing daughter. A thorough inspection of the village revealed Julia's last known whereabouts to be the stables, but it could not be determined where she next went. Puzzled over her disappearance, heated words were exchanged regarding the next course of action. Her parents were adamant she would never stray far, especially alone, but the forest was the only place not yet searched. Many agreed to a morning search, but only Ronald's two closest friends agreed to immediate action. The three men ventured into the dense, dark woods. Thorny brambles tugged at their legs as they called for Julia. The torches were difficult to maneuver through the low-hanging vines and limbs, but they refused to turn back, hoping the young girl could not have traveled far. They planned to only go a little further before turning to circle the settlement's perimeter. They came to a sudden halt when the loud snap of a broken branch sounded to their left. Standing back to back, two men held their torches high while the third aimed his rifle in the direction of the noise. There was only silence as they waited. Ronald called for Julia, but no answer came. They walked a few yards more until the treetops overhead began to shake violently, despite the fact no wind blew. Coming to another stop, they could only stare up in horror as a giant black shadow moved from tree to tree above them, circling the three men. David Sullivan dropped his rifle to the ground and fled in terror. The thing in the trees stopped quickly, turning away to chase David like a cat with a mouse. Greg Jones and Ronald stood frozen in terror. The trees following their friend's trail shook as the beast chased him down. He was out of sight when David's death wails were heard, but... That did not make it easier to hear. After the screams fell silent, the two men woke from their trance. No moon or stars could be seen from beneath the forest canopy, but they feared the torch would reveal their location. Light held low, hearts thudding, they retreated away from the place their friend was killed. They could see hardly a foot away, but they did not pause, focusing only on the next step ahead. The sound of their heavy breaths broke the silence adding another unsettling layer to the atmosphere. Greg has always claimed he felt the thing's eyes before he heard it return. They were barely fifty yards from salvation when a shadow streaked by their right, then across their path. Mr. Jones says its outline was visible for hardly a second, but he is certain it was almost seven feet tall, and its head and back were disproportionate to the rest of its body. The sight cost him a moment's hesitation, but Ronald sprung forward. As it had with David, the beast shot through the trees, giving chase. The screams were heard by all in the village. Greg escaped as his friend died in agony. Nothing more could be done for the dead. All efforts of a morning search were called off. Janice had to be physically restrained to prevent her from entering the forest. Her mind has never been quite right since. But considering the terrible events of the following morning, that should not come as a surprise. Damn. Yet again, I have stayed at this desk too long. The rest will have to wait. Holy smokes, folks. We got a live one. Assume positions. <sighs> Trish, it's clear. You can bring our friend out now. I'm terribly sorry for the rude interruption. It's been a long time since my mother-in-law was so riled up. 
I think she's just curious about you. But don't worry, I don't plan on doing any introductions. Well, that's kind of you to say, but I feel just awful about this mess. You went paler than a bucket of white paint when that door flew open. Most can't get inside at all, but we tend to be persistent in this family. Don't you worry, though. I promise this time I'm sure she won't be back tonight. And probably not for a while. (laughs) You and your specific questions. Hey, it's getting pretty late. We better get back to it or we won't have time to finish the next entry. February 4th, 1677. Today I visited James to discuss his travel preparations. He believes they will be ready to leave a few days earlier than estimated if the weather continues to warm. I am both worried and excited about the upcoming expedition, but I fear for my brother's life most. I cannot imagine how I will cope with the anxiety for such an extended period. Last night I had a frightfully vivid nightmare. Like my predecessors, I believe dwelling on these morbid topics are affecting my mind. It was so real, I can almost still smell the blood. In my dream, I was part of the fourth settlement. Three men and I were deep in the cursed woods, hunting. I have never seen them, yet I knew them in the moment. After a long day, we packed our meat and began the hike home. We walked for hours as day faded to dusk, long after we should have returned. There was only one trail where we hunt. We could not understand how we became lost. Then an argument erupted. Two wished to turn back in search of familiar surroundings. Myself and the other were determined to continue forward. Eventually, exhausted and frustrated, we split up. If I were truly in such circumstances, I have no doubt I would retrace my steps to familiar territory, yet in my dream, the idea was unthinkable. It grew darker by the minute, and we could not afford further delay. I thought of my family's worry if I were forced to camp overnight and walked faster. Eventually, we saw a soft orange glow ahead. In my mind, I knew we should run away, but my feet carried me against my wishes. I assumed the same was true for my companion. He walked alongside me, equally entranced by the mysterious lights growing brighter at our approach. The path we walked opened into a small, dead clearing. Not one blade of grass grew within the circle, only a stone altar stood in the otherwise empty clearing. The source of the light seemed to be dozens of glowing, I don't know how to convey, orbs or sacks hanging in the surrounding trees. They were the size of watermelons, but soft and oozing a thick liquid. They writhed as if something moved inside, my innards tangled at the sight. I saw my partner walk forward, hand outstretched, mouth open. I wanted to scream for him to stop, but I only watched. I still feel the bile that rose in the back of my throat when he touched one only for it to burst. A foul yellow liquid covered the man and I could hear the sizzle of his skin beneath his screams of agony. I covered my eyes but could not look away as the substance reduced him to a puddle. Long as I live, I may never lose the image of it. There was a slight rustle in the tree directly above and before I could move, it dropped from the branches, landing behind me. I felt the vibrations in the ground and heard the crunch of leaves as it landed. I willed my feet to flee but lost all control of bodily functions. I was helpless as I felt hot, putrid breath on the back of my neck 
A single claw lightly touched my head, traced down to my shoulder and around my throat before stopping. With barely a pause, two rough, bony hands squeezed my head until I thought my skull would shatter. The pressure was so intense, my vision blacked out. The last thing I heard before waking, drenched with sweat, was, You are too weak. It seems foolish to be so disturbed by a mere dream, but I do not have it in me to write more this night. At least Trish should be pleased. February 6th, 1677. A short break is exactly what I needed. I feel refreshed and eager to write again. The morning after Ronald and David were killed, the village woke to a stable boy frantically ringing a bell, shouting for the doctor. When the boy was calm enough to communicate, they learned the body of Janice Burns was in the loft, concealed beneath the hay. Two men were dead, and she never left the stables. Her clothes were ripped, and she bore the marks of being strangled, but she was not sexually violated. The already divided community became hostile, some trading blows amidst the arguments. I cannot imagine their position. In a place with so much evil, how does one know when it is truly the work of man? A few days later, Jeffrey Morris returned home to find his wife missing. This time, they left no stone unturned in the search. She was found in the church house, her body left lying on a pew in much the same condition as Janice. The only difference was the skin beneath her nails. Knowing the murderer was marked, each man was inspected. When Marcus Deem's arm bore deep, red scratches, he claimed it happened while clearing thorn bushes from his land. When his story fell apart, he wept, begging for forgiveness, claiming evil spirits forced his hand. Several witnesses say the man showed no signs of remorse before caught, but, even guilty, I do not know if he deserved his fate. The man was already disliked in the community. He had no family and few he could call friend. The two factions of believers and non-believers were both crazed with fear and anger. It is difficult to get clear answers regarding how the decision was made. I believe all parties feel guilt for their actions, but it was decided Marcus would be the test to prove if monsters are real. Fearing the lake monster least, as it is theoretically confined to the lake, they tied Mr. Dean's hands and feet, putting him on a small raft. They gave him a makeshift paddle, stating he would go free if he made it to the other side. No one spoke as the man awkwardly rowed. The only sound was the splash of his oar and a slight shuffle as he repositioned himself. He could only row on one side for a few strokes before he began turning, and each time he changed sides, he almost lost the paddle. He was near the center when something large splashed in the boat behind him. His head snapped sharply to the side, looking for the source, but the water went still before anything more happened. Rowing faster, the raft rocked side to side with his clumsy, panicked movement. In mid-stroke, Marcus's paddle froze. He could be seen struggling to pull it from the water, but it appeared stuck. Another splash sounded as the oar was ripped from his grip. The resulting wave pushed Dean away, and the crowd gasped as pale, grayish-blue tentacles shot from the water, wrapping around the screaming man and pulling him under. He never resurfaced. It was a long time before anyone moved, but when they did, they returned to their home silently. As my forefather once wrote, I do believe the demon understands when the people have decided to leave. They gathered in the morning and agreed they could be ready to go in two days. 
With Marcus deceased, they did not believe themselves to be in immediate danger so long as they avoided the lake and forest. That assumption cost them dearly. Like so many before them, brother was turned against sister, husband against wife, and no one was safe. Helen Atkins smothered her baby before disappearing into the forest. John Newman was stabbed to death by his wife, and their son vanished in the chaos. Eric Smith, only seven at the time, hid in a closet as his father murdered his sister and mother before his footsteps could be heard leaving the house. Each survivor holds a similar tale. When the sun rose on the second day, seventeen people lived. They did not pause to bury the dead. They left Dirge Lake with what possessions were already prepared and did not look back. When the wagons rode into Jamestown, they were welcomed and guided to the homes built in their anticipation. Some of our men returned for the livestock left behind, but since that day, no one has crossed the river. There is no telling what may live there after so many years, but I hope James will return with new knowledge before we find out. Discovering how and why some are affected and some are not is almost as vital as destroying the demon. Why do some seem to sleepwalk into the forest while others suffer from delusions? Some have experienced both. Is it the work of more than one creature, or do the results depend on the victim? These questions burn within me, but I am helpless to discover the answers. March 11, 1677 Finally, I can write something more interesting than the daily drivel. James and a small contingent of men have left for the Great Mountains. The long wait for his return officially begins. I already feel as if I will crawl out of my skin with worry, but it cannot be helped. If this expedition is successful, it could save countless lives in the future. I should not get my hopes up, but my imagination runs rampant, and I am at its mercy. That entry babbles on a little bit longer, but the relevant parts are over. Next time, we can skip ahead to when the fifth group arrives. Boy, did those folks give me a run for my money. But we don't have time to get into it now. The sun's coming up, and we shouldn't press our luck any... Uh, hold on there, friend. Let me clean out my ears before you repeat yourself. It sounded like you said you brought presents. Thank you, gifts? Oh, shucks. You shouldn't have. I noticed your pack was a little bulgy this time, but you know me... Always respecting others' privacy. Bless my oddly corporeal soul. I'm on pins and needles. What is it? Oh my word. Those are Stephen King books. Real ones. Ones where the battery doesn't die. Yes, please, let me give them a good whiff. Really? You bet. Feel free to bring me any books you were going to donate. In fact, do you need cash? We have lots just sitting in a dresser. You could update your digital library and donate the old ones. Well, that's just silly, Trish. I'm not scaring our best friend. Look, that's the face of... Uh, er, hey, I know. Let's get you on the trail. Can't risk anything happening to you, can we, pal? I thank you kindly, and will anxiously await your next visit. Come back real soon now. Real, real soon. <laughs> 